Good morning. Kentoku, feel free to move your chair up uh, next to Daishin. This is the last Teisho I'll be giving in 2017 at Hoenji. I hope that many of you will be able to join us at New Year's, at New Year's Eve on the 31st when I'll be giving a talk again at Daibusatsu Zendo. I was so happy that many of you were able to go to Rohatsu at DBZ. It was really extraordinary. And uh, the depth and power of it had everything to do with the hard work that went on before for many weeks preparing for Thanksgiving with 60 or so people for the Dharma transmission ceremony with 120 people and the vicissitudes of everyone's plans that kept changing. I'm arriving on Tuesday. No, I guess I won't be there until... No, yes, I will. No, I'll be bringing... No, I won't. Yes, I will. And so all the... Just the the genuine caring and encouragement and work that went on really produced the best Rohatsu session any of us had ever experienced. And the same is true here. I know many of you were here diligently every day during the Rohatsu period, sitting in the mornings, sitting in the evenings, and feeling that really incredible bond of Sangha, just sitting, just taking care of this beautiful temple. The work that goes on here, too, although it may not be as evident, since we don't have a daily Niten Soji work schedule, nonetheless, I know many are coming here in between sittings or early before sittings to dust, to mop the floors, to shovel snow, to clean bathrooms, to make food, to whatever it is that is needed. And the intertwining of work and sitting and chanting, this is what we mean by practice, by Zen practice. One cannot exist without the other. The more we offer ourselves, the more the Dharma is manifesting in every moment of our lives. 
And the more we can awaken to the ordinary moment of taking out the trash, something happens. Oh, we don't know. So mysterious and yet just as it is. So I noticed sitting this morning that thoughts of what has been, what needs to be, what will eventually transpire and require attention are quite powerful themselves. They seem to have a, um, a way of insinuating themselves in the midst of what we set out to call just sitting. How many of you have had this experience? <laughs> it's so interesting. So I wanted to share with you um, what I might call the, the secret method to eliminate thoughts. <laughs> I know everyone is really excited about hearing this. <laughs> I have to say that it's so simple that you won't follow it. Hmm. First of all, we have to create the best possible seat, the grounding of our practice. To really become the breath requires a firm and what shall I say, rooted seat. So this has to do with your sitting bones and your lower back. You see this, this great secret that I'm going to convey to you is one I tell everybody all the time and people just like, oh yeah, right, that's important. <laughs> but really feel that connection between the sitting bones and this great earth. You might have to lean forward a little, raise your hips a bit, and then come back down, and then feel that lower back curve. This is a great mystery. In that rootedness, in that lower back curve, in that thr slight thrust forward of the lower abdomen, something happens from the tailbone up, from the bottom of the spine up. Do you know what it is? Energy. The energy. The energy that often gets trapped. Sometimes you feel your breath is not full, right? Sometimes you feel there is somehow a, a sense of um, maybe physical 
com compression. So this energy up the spine, we can do this from that grounded place to start feeling the elongation of the spine. You feel what happens? Well, it might not be so good if you're holding your hands like this. Drop your hands, everybody, on your, on your knees. So now, again, can you feel your sitting bones? This can be on the chair, on the floor, on the mat. But from those sitting bones, can you feel what happens when you elongate your spine? Your chest opens. You feel that? Some of you, like you, naturally have a kind of falling forward. And so this is so important. When you're tall and thin, this is what often occurs, that kind of hunch. So when you experience this, this really strong sense of elongation, bringing the chin in a little bit, but not dropping the head, and then feeling how open your shoulders are, your heart is open. And then you can experience what the breath can do when it is unimpeded. The breath and zazen practice are one and the same. The breath and awakening are one and the same. No one ever became enlightened without the breath. Isn't that good to know? <laughs> you are all breathing. But now put your hands together. And if you are not sitting in full lotus or half lotus, you will probably find that your hands come lower than the nice shelf that's created when you do sit. Who's sitting full lotus? Anybody? Huh? Half lotus? Yes? Hmm? Okay, so you have a small shelf on that little, the, the foot that is above, and that makes for a beautiful circular feeling in the arms. But if you try to get that circle in the arms, and you don't have that nice place to rest the hands, you end up with quite a lot of stiffness in here, which is not so helpful, especially when we're trying to keep this wonderful open feeling so you can drop your hands that's fine either way you're holding either cosmic mudra or the uh the other kind of mudra so now what's happening what's happening is you're already collapsing it doesn't take more than a minute for that intentional elongation and openness to start doing this I'm exaggerating. But Zazen is not static. Zazen posture is not static. Always become aware of this grounding through the sitting bones. This is what happens if you're not aware. I just moved back in incrementally. Did you notice what happened? I'm not on my sitting bones anymore. 
So right at that moment, let the pelvis come forward a little bit. Let the lower back allow for this elongation. If you're sitting in a chair, it's especially important to use a cushion behind your lower back for that reason. And then, now we are aware of the breath. The lower abdomen is where you're going to be feeling the breath coming in. But don't pay any attention to it now. What I want you to do first is, after you inhale, I want you to exhale really long, counting to, let's say, 8 or 10 or 12, however long you can on the exhalation. I want to also remind you that I'm saying this in connection with the fact that the wandering mind, the thought forms that preoccupy us, are what we are working to eliminate. So this is not just a matter of posture and breath and then maybe we'll do zazen. It's the whole thing. So, check out your sitting bones, check out your lower back, check out your upper spine, your chin. Even in those few seconds, they've had a little bit of a collapse. It's so amazing. This brings you back to the present. Just this slight check. Every few seconds, have I collapsed? Am I doing zazen or am I all involved in what I think so-and-so might like for a gift? No. (laughs) No. Now, everyone, after you've had a chance to inhale, Let's exhale, counting the entire length of the exhalation. I've taught some of you this, but it's very helpful. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Then, lower abdomen fills not in any forced way, not in any gasping way. It just naturally releases to allow the breath. Did you feel that? Let's try it again. This time you count. One, two, three. I can't hear anybody. Isn't that beautiful? What what an oratorio we are. (laughs) So of course you're not going to sit in the zendo and zazen counting out loud any more than you would be counting from one to ten on the exhalations, but this is a really good way to bring your attention back to the breath. But just bringing it back to the breath by itself, without setting yourself up in this really wonderfully strong and grounded sitting posture, will not work. 
Maybe some of you have noticed how hard it is to really become one with the breath for more than two breaths. The mind, you know, especially when we're not in an eight-day session, tends to wander. And the chattering, the thoughts about this and that, the problems we're having, what should we do, how should we resolve them, what do you think the final outcome of the next stage of our lives will be? Will we live past whatever? No, this is not necessary. Just stop. But you have experienced the hopelessness of your mind telling your mind to stop, I'm sure. Doesn't work. That's why I'm giving you this great secret to do this not just at the beginning of the sitting, but to realize that sitting is not static. The breath is continuous, but your mind is not with the breath continuously. So, to really bring our attention to this moment, this breath, requires a continual slight, what shall we call it? It's not movement exactly. You're not moving on the cushion, but it is in a way uh, recalibration. So you know the phrase stone Buddhas, right? It's used in a pejorative sense to mean, oh, there are people who just, you know, have this great silent illumination, and there they are, and they're not involved in anything, and their practice is very selfish. And none of you are stone Buddhas. And none of you can sit as stone Buddhas, because if you try, you become locked in. So this is what I mean by it's not static. It's alive. Your breath is alive. You can try holding your breath for a minute to experience what that's like and you will find out how amazingly subtle yet continuous the movement of your being alive is in stillness. So this is the wonderful paradox of Zen practice. There is this continuum of breath, readjustment, The stiller you are in your posture, the more you can be attuned to the necessary readjustment in your spine, in your chest, in your sitting bones. So some of you have already begun breathing out for 10 or 12 counts, right? Doesn't it feel good? Yeah. I don't have to say a thing. This is the best, your own Taisho, best Taisho. And just to remember, every sitting can be done this way, to return with this wholehearted heart in the sense of heart-mind, wholehearted, complete awareness. out of which action will come. 
out of which understanding how to resolve difficult issues will come. Don't try to do that during your zazen. It doesn't work. It simply takes you away from your life. Imagine living your life always away, always absent. It's not so unusual. So to really be here and to trust, this is the most important thing. When we just keep returning to this kind of slight, aware, therefore, slight adjustment, and then the breath. There's no room for the wandering mind to get fixated on anything. There is no such thing as the wandering mind. The thought of no thought. This is what we are doing. The trust comes to what we might call the conditioned way of understanding our lives, that if we get stuck in those conditioned patterns, we won't be able to do anything at all that needs to be done. It will just be more of the same old, same old patterns in new forms. Raise your hand if you want more of that. You may not think you want it, but you do on some level. There is that attachment to the thing you know best, your own suffering. But it doesn't have to be. So the trust comes in knowing that when you get up from your zazen, you will have created the clarity out of which whatever needs to be decided, whatever needs to be examined, whatever needs to be commenced or finished, will be able to, in this free way, be taken care of. If you don't have that trust, then what you're really saying is, I am in charge of the universe. We don't see it that way when we get all caught up, but that's what it translates to be. This Thursday, 
is the winter solstice and mandala day. And of course we will begin the Thursday evening sitting with mandala day chanting. And it's so important for all of us to be together in this way, to really feel the, I spoke earlier saying the word, the continuum, the continuum of the practice as it has been handed down for so many, many, many hundreds of years, since some 2,600 years ago, when a prince walked out of the palace and said, no, to all the distractions that his life had brought him, to all the comforts, to all the material goods, and just said, stop, sit down, and realize the truth. And we've been doing this, all of us, ever since. And this has nothing to do with how old you are or where you were born or what your sense of yourself might be. It's far beyond that. When we adjust our posture in this very subtle way and extend and feel the heart opening and just become this exhalation, there is truly no difference between the awakening of that prince, the potential of our own awakening is right at hand. You all know because we chant it all the time, sentient beings are fundamentally Buddha. To realize this is why we are doing this practice. To realize this is how we can say, however innumerable all beings are, I vow to save them all. I vow to liberate all beings. I vow, therefore, I am here, present, so that whatever needs to be taken care of, this I is truly understood to include all beings. So there are no others to liberate. You all understand that. Therefore, liberating oneself is liberating all beings. This is what the Buddha said when he awakened. I and all beings together are perfect and complete. 
So to have this grounded posture, this freely flowing breath, this awareness that has nothing to do with any of the conditioned patterns that have hindered you, to see through them, to see them as just things that are reflected in that clear mirror. This is to make this vow. This morning I was reading the reviews section of the New York Times and there were two articles that I thought were wonderful, which some of you may want to take a look at. One is about the solstice. It's called In Praise of Darkness. As you know, in Syracuse, we get lots of that. It's really amazing when we have a day like this, isn't it? It's like a free... unimpeded inhalation. After you've completely exhaled and there's absolutely no more to that exhalation, what happens next? That free experience of breath. It's this kind of light. But we really can appreciate it most at the winter solstice even though it's unlikely that we will have another sunny day for the next month, to have this rare brightness. You know, other places in the world, they don't appreciate it. In L.A., it's sunny all the time. I remember Jesse telling me, we're coming back to the Northeast, we can't stand it here. It's too sunny. There are no seasons. So to feel this way about the solstice, this dark, long night, and short day, and feeling the power of this moment on the earth as it changes in its turning. This uh, writer says, The December solstice inaugurating winter in the northern hemisphere and summer in the southern occurs at the moment the North Pole is most tilted away from the sun. The northern world's days grow shorter. Sunlight lands at shallower angles, heating the hemisphere less and casting December's familiar long shadows across the snow. Appreciate this. Feel this. Again, it's not a matter of an intellectual decision, but rather to be this, 
this long night, the shadows of the short day. And then the other article that I really enjoyed was called My Year of No Shopping. And this is very helpful for us as we are finding ourselves in a time of, as I referred to earlier, what should I get for so-and-so? What gift? What? And people are feeling oppressed because they don't have the money to buy the things that they're told they need to buy in order to be worthy. Have you ever felt that way? So she, a friend of hers actually had told her about just not buying anything for a year. She decided she had enough stuff, too much stuff. And so she, the writer, Ann Patchett, said, At the end of 2016, our country had swung in the direction of gold leaf, an ecstatic celebration of unfeeling billionairedom that kept me up at night. I couldn't settle down to read or write. And so she continues. She tried to distract herself by online... uh, kind of mindlessly scrolling through shopping websites. The uh, distraction, she writes, left me feeling worse the way a late night in a bar smoking Winston's and drinking gin leaves you feeling worse. The unspoken question of shopping is, what do I need? Of course, we understand this uh, phraseology, right, from our practice as um, a red flag of enslavement. What do I need? I need, I need. What I needed, she said, was less. So she decided to do this and realized that she had a lot of things she had forgotten about, even running out of lip balm And then realizing that in her desk drawers and coat pockets, there were five lip balms. And starting to dig around under the bathroom sink and realizing that she could probably run this experiment for three more years before using up all the lotion, soap, and dental floss. In March, she writes, I wished I had a Fitbit. The new one that looked like a bracelet and didn't need to be connected to a smartphone. For four days, I really wanted a Fitbit, and then, poof, I didn't want one. I remember my parents trying to teach me this lesson while I was a child. If you want something, wait a while. Chances are the feeling will pass. This is so helpful. Maybe your parents didn't teach that to you. If you want something, wait a while. It doesn't matter what it is. A thing, a person, a circumstance, 
whatever it is, just wait a while. She then writes, It doesn't take so long for a craving to subside, be it for Winston's or gin or cupcakes. Once I got the hang of giving shopping up, it wasn't much of a trick. The trickier part was living with the startling abundance that had become glaringly obvious when I stopped trying to get more. Once I could see what I already had and what actually mattered, I was left with a feeling that was somewhere between being sickened and humbled. When did I amass so many things? And did someone else need them? If you stop thinking about what you might want, it's a whole lot easier to see what other people don't have. There is a reason that just about every religion regards material belongings as an impediment to peace. This is why Siddhartha had to leave his palace to become the Buddha. This is why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. There are just a couple of other things that she says that I really think are worth sharing with you, so if you don't mind, I'll just read two more paragraphs or so. The things we buy and buy and buy are like a thick coat of Vaseline smeared on glass. We can see some shapes out there, light and dark, but in our constant craving for what we may still want or think we need, we miss life's details. For the record, I still have more than plenty. I know there is a vast difference between not buying things and not being able to buy things. Not shopping for a year hardly makes me one with the poor, but it has put me on the path of figuring out what I can do to help. And again, this word trust comes in. If we can really do this, across the board, and I'm not just talking about shopping, I'm not just talking about things, but just realizing what abundance we are in the midst of. Maybe we can see what it is we can do to help. Those of you who are residents here hardly own anything compared to the vast majority of people like myself with a huge Victorian house filled to the brim. Nonetheless, the mental attitude is really important to examine.
she then contacted her friend who had inspired this year without shopping. And she told her that she had decided to re-up for another year. I realized I had too many decisions to make that were actually important, she said. There were people to help, things to do. Not shopping frees up a lot of space in your brain. And then she ends, as the great social activist Dorothy Day liked to say, the best thing to do with the best things in life is to give them up. So we are all practicing giving them up every time we exhale. We are making this practice something that returns us to the original, liberated truth of our lives. When we can trust this, and whatever needs our attention, we can take care of. Those who are needing our care, we can give it without projecting how we think it should be. True compassion can be naturally experienced, not as self and other, but as we truly are one. So, happy holidays. Thank <laughs> you.